Welcome to Future of Tech, hosted by Avishai Sharlin, Division President of Amdocs Technology. In this podcast, Avishai sits down with some of the most innovative minds in technology to learn how they are disrupting the present and what kind of impact they hope to have in the future. From the machine learning programs that are solving some of the world's biggest problems to what AI can do to help fight biological bottlenecks in human thinking, no topic is off limits. So sit back, relax, and maybe take some notes because what you hear on this show might just be a glimpse into the future. Like it or not, the younger generation is an important demographic for every industry to pay attention to. Millennials and Gen Z currently have buying power and influence, and the decisions they make now and the tech and brands they become loyal to today will impact the winners and losers of the future. So the question becomes, how do you get the attention of these young people and engage with them long-term? Clint Runge is the CEO and founder of Arch Rival, a youth culture agency that reinvents how brands win the hearts and minds of young adults. Clint is helping to build back trust in brands among the upcoming generation, and he's using technology and new platforms to make that happen. On this episode of Future of Tech, Clint dives into the state of marketing today and how brands need to be thinking about reaching younger audiences. This is important because according to Clint, if you understand what drives that generation, you can identify broader trends that will set your business up for success in other areas. To achieve this success, Clint details exactly how and why it's necessary to start blending the digital world and the real world. Rather than pushing old-school marketing techniques through new technology, Clint discusses how brands can use the new technology as a tool to innovate and blend real-life engagement with digital platforms. Plus, he talks about where companies will be gathering the most data from in the future and why you should start embracing the technology that scares you the most. Enjoy this episode. Future of Tech is brought to you by Amdocs Tech. Amdocs Tech is Amdocs' R&D and technology center, paving the way to a better connected future by creating open, innovative, best-in-class products and continuously evolving the way we work, learn, and live. To learn more about Amdocs, visit the Amdocs technology page on LinkedIn. So, today in Future of Tech, I have the pleasure of... uh, speaking to uh, Clint Runge, and uh, we're going to speak about probably marketing and, and some other uh, interesting uh, stuff. Yeah. Um, so hello, Clint, how are you? Hello. Good. I'm doing great. Just trying to survive like everyone. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So may- maybe the best thing to start is that the beginning, uh, Somewhere around 20 years ago, 1997, you've decided to uh, found a new company. Mm-hmm. Take me to the journey. Why? What happened? You know, what was the uh, driving forces behind this decision? I'll tell you. Um, so when I was going through, I actually was going through architecture school. And uh, during that time in architecture school, uh, I was part of a generation that got to use technology for the first time in that field. So lap- we were doing everything on laptops and everything was digital based and we were creating animations of spaces. 
and the industry of architecture is still very, was at that time very old school, right? Everything was done with pencil and T-squares and uh, we were part of this new generation. So everything that we were doing was sort of against the grain. Yeah. And of course, there are some people in architecture who would embrace that. This is the future. And there are others, of course, you know, legacy architects, of course, that would say, oh, you're not able to get the same touch on, a, on an idea or a drawing. And so, of course, you know, we're young. We embrace, embrace that idea. I realized, though, that I loved using technology to problem solve, but I didn't really enjoy the future of the industry because it seemed very top down. That is, if you wanted to do something important in the industry, you had to wait 20 years. So being naive as I was, uh, I looked at advertising and thought, well, maybe in advertising, ideas come quicker and for young adults, and there's a more of a space for that. So I got a degree in advertising, and somewhere between the two, I realized the process for coming up with great architecture was actually the same process for coming up with great advertising. And I realized, I think what I want to be great at is the creative process. So that launched then into a business of saying, well, let me just apply this. Now, I did this out of university, so at that time, being young, naive, but very passionate, you know, no one wants to hire broke college students who are inexperienced. So I had to hustle and do as much as I could for as little as I could. I was literally a starving artist through all these times. Yeah. But good, and using technology to help solve problems. So as that blossomed after about five years, I realized that the, barrier, the biggest barrier to our business was our youth, young inexperienced and a lot of people were nervous about hiring an agency so young. And instead we thought, well, actually we think this is a positive and we flipped it and said, well, let's be a company about youth culture. And the reason that you hire us is because we do know things that you don't know. We understand how to attract and engage young adults. And so turning that negative into a positive unleashed the world for us. And so we've been growing our business ever since. And today we're still a youth culture agency. Of course I get older, but the agency stays the same age. Which is good, which is good. <laughs> Always keeps you young. Yeah. So you, you completely left the, the previous um, advertising and uh, uh, architecture uh, scenes or you're, you have some... Uh... Well, I would say that today we do something as a blend of that. We're using design problem solving from architecture, but we're using marketing techniques and you know, all this to help brands attract and engage the future of their consumers, young adults. Good. So give me like an example about uh, how can you, or what are the areas that you, uh, you, you, you turn this uh, upside down in terms of uh, the notion of being, uh, or addressing young people? What oftentimes what happens is that brands are run by like people like you or, or me who are from different generations. And it's very difficult for us to truly understand and grasp the life of a teenager. I live with a few at home, so I try to... Uh, uh, so you get it. <laughs> and it's a constant... <laughs> I don't know if I get it. Well, there's a constant battle, I'm sure, of trying to understand. Like, here's, here's how you see the world operating, and here's how they see the world operating. And that can cause tension and oftentimes, you know, great conversation as well. Well, the same thing is true for brands. You know, they want to engage young adults. And so we go wherever youth culture is going. So, for example, back in 2005, when Facebook first came online, we were telling brands, let's get here, let's get on Facebook. And then of course, as that became all the rage, like leading and coming up with the next development of what's the future of the platforms, working with Facebook, brands like Red Bull, like really figuring out what is the next thing. We built the first uh, social game on Facebook. So it's like helping brands be on that forward leaning side of things. And of course now it's, it's expanded to, to so many different things. 
but it, what we try to be is a gateway for brands to go where young adults are already living, existing, playing, working, buying, getting influence from, but as brands, older adults, we're a little nervous or don't understand it. So this is great. Maybe you can explain to me what did the uh, young people found in uh, Pokemon. But how do you keep yourself in touch with the next wave or the next thing? It's a challenge, uh, you know, and I, I think that, you know, when we started our business, I, w- I was able to have one foot authentically in youth culture and one foot in kind of a professional world. And so the, the liaison, the lens between the two were easy. But as you get older, it becomes more difficult. But what I found is that if you keep yourself on top of it, and I've just made it my job, if you keep on top of it and take a, and really understand what wins the hearts and minds of young adults, then you can start to see the patterns in life. And you can see like every new trend that pops up, that's, you know, a flash in the pan. I don't, I try not to chase those trends. I try to look at the long-term patterns and say, okay, where's the best, you know, where are the things that we can count on reliably to put ourselves there? So I just make it my job. And uh, I found that it, if you're able to do that, then, then you could do it. Yeah, this is great. This is for sure is right. So you've mentioned culture. Do you see difference in, in terms of culture between different regions in the world that uh, apply to, uh, to the young generations? Yeah, but it's not as great as we might think. So the older that you get, the more bordered the world is. And you think about, you know, even someone like my, my dad and my, my parents' generation who went to war defining where one culture starts and another stops, right? And, and you still see that today. And so there's a very bordered world, but the younger you get, the borderless it is. So, yep. you know, we're, they're, they're growing up playing games from, with people from all over the world. They're just jumping on Xbox and they're playing games with people from Korea and, you know, or Israel. They're just like, True. They're just playing. And, so, and so the culture starts to bleed. We talk to a lot of young adults and uh, I talked to uh, one recently who was a photographer in the U.S. who had done like a, uh, we'll call it a Soviet type photography. It had a very almost Cold War looking um, era type of photography. And then some people, some people in Russia saw that. They, these teens in Russia, they really liked it. And so then they started like exchanging messages and now they're shipping products to each other. And it's just like, that's very normal that we can all have these friends from all over the world on our devices. So I think that culture, there's a global culture with young adults. And then as I do this state of youth culture talk where I go talk about trends and depending on where I am in the world, about 70% of, of it applies globally and the other 30% becomes culturally or locally relevant, but the principles still apply. It's just how it executes or how it comes to life may change in a different region. Okay. And those 30%, can, can you give me an example of something which will be um, local as opposed to um, you know, widely spread? Yeah, actually, uh, if, if it might be in how a product is purchased. So I may, ha- I may be thinking, uh, I love a brand, I want to buy from a brand, but how I actually buy from that brand may change. So, mm. um, you know, in America, I may still walk into a store, but obviously uh, in China, it, you know, it's going to be on their, on their WeChat platform, it's going to be completely different. So, but the, but the mentality behind a purchase may stay the same. Uh, why I may buy one brand over another may stay the same, but the actual execution of the purchase may change. How would this uh, correlates to what you call the human-powered marketing? All right. So there is this idea that and I think a lot of organizations are talking about this, which is trust. And trust has radically changed. We look at, we've been following trust for a while with young adults. 
And, you know, who do we trust today? Well, we, you know, universally, we don't trust governments. We don't trust CEOs or people in positions of power. We don't trust media. Uh, and in fact, the, you know, what do we trust the least is advertising, yeah. which is crazy when you think about it, but actually not because, you know, when's the last time even you listened to an, an ad and thought, oh, yeah, they have my best interest in mind and <laughs> it's all curated garbage, right? So we, don't, we trust advertising the least. So where do we actually get our sources of influence from? If I want to learn about a new brand or buy a new product, who can I trust? I can't trust those companies. Who I can trust are one, independent experts. So people who seem removed, seemingly removed from the, from the purchase or, and this is where we spend a lot of our business, is people like me. And I put that in quotes. It's not me, Clint, you know, talking to you, but me as a consumer. Yeah, yeah. And we look for people who are in our same positions, our same situations, our same life, uh, who have the same life resumes and the reasons why they buy. You know, this is, think about this for you. If you go to Amazon or, or like uh, Merchant and you pull up the page that you're going to buy a product, you look at the marketing language and it's like, ah, skip right by that. That's a bunch of garbage. And you go down to the reviews and you start looking at the reviews. And even the reviews, you're probably selective and saying, oh, that, that's, that looks like it's fake. That doesn't, that's not me. That's not me. But then you find the one and you're like, whoa, whoa, whoa. that's me. Yeah. This is my situation. Yeah. And if they have a positive review on it, you're going to say, great, I'm going to buy the product. Yeah. So everything else didn't matter. What mattered was that human being like you. Yeah. And that's what influenced you. Now, that's true for you and I. The younger you get, the more true that is. So human-powered marketing is the idea where we are finding the most motivated and influential people to represent a brand and be put into the spaces and places that brands need to be. So that could be on TikTok, it could be in high school hallways, it could be in university, at university campuses, it could be in uh, virtual gaming platforms. Wherever young adults exist, we're putting human beings as the face of the brand, not ads, but people transparently into those places. That's human-powered marketing. Okay. People which, in a way, are, as you said, similar to me. Yeah. That I can resonate with or I can, uh, okay. Yeah. Now, after all, it's a technology podcast. So, in, hmm. in a world that technology is, dry, is driving everything and, every, and behind the scene, you have a lot of AI-driven artifacts and also uh, robotic process automation. Are you... Can this me be actually something that an AI algorithm cre uh, created and therefore I, I believe it's me, but it's just someone pretending to be uh, someone like me? So the, the, uh, the old guy in me says, no way, not possible. But the younger version of me that understands young adults says, absolutely, I'm going to trust that. And I, I think that, you know, you're bringing up like, I, I think this is fascinating. This whole rise of virtual influencers yep. is incredible. Even watching, you know, KDA, the K-pop group from Riot Games, start to have a phenomenon outside of their gaming platform, but now like releasing an EP and yep. becoming, you know, universally known. And they're all virtual characters powered by human beings, but virtual characters and virtual influencers, they're impacting businesses. I can see this as, this is human powered marketing just with virtual in, with virtual identities. And if you add AI, you mentioned AI, you bring AI into this. And as, as these two things, we start to intersect. Yeah. I think we got, we're on the verge of something pretty powerful. So 1997 was a year that you started to play around and then technology was, you know, kind of something that you 
played with. 20 years down the road, how do you see technology today playing this uh, ecosystem? As seamless as possible. And what I mean by that is I think there's still a world in which we talk about technology and you're in this every day, so I'm sure you see this, where there's like, there's a digital tech, tech world and then there's like real life world. And I think a lot of people still see them as separate. But those who are really on the forefront of using technology to solve problems, to engage and market to, to people, know that young adults actually, it's all one. They, they don't see these separate worlds. Their digital life and the way that they engage online and virtually is the same way that they are engaging IRL, right, in real life. So I think, you know, from where it was 20 years ago, was these were two separate worlds. And now... It's like, it's all the same thing to them. And I think a lot of companies and organizations would benefit from changing their, you know, mindset to saying, oh, these aren't, we're not adding technology into something or developing. It's like, we got to think about it all as one. Life just is digital. Like it's the same. And the younger you get, the more true that is. So I, I think that's like where, I think that actually gets me really excited, frankly. Yeah, for sure. For for youngsters, this there is no other reality for sure. So therefore, they are uh, it's part of their life. Now, who will uh, work with your company? You've mentioned Red Bull. You mentioned Spotify and and others. So, what's the process? So take me through an example. So someone through someone knocks on your door, your virtual door. Yeah. Um, you have this session, and now you're building what? Creating what? Assisting him with what? I'll tell you our most popular, but it could look a lot of ways. I mean, I like to think of ourselves as problem solvers. So what we're going to do is we're going to listen to a client situation. Okay. And they're going to say, we're struggling to reach young adults and we want to sell more widgets to them. Okay. Okay. Well, let's really figure out where are the pain points in the consumer journey? Where is it that you're missing this audience? You know, there are some clients who are really culturally relevant. And for them, it's like, it's just like keeping them up on the forefront of what's next. Okay. But there's other clients who are very far behind and we have to bridge that gap authentically, right? And so that takes a strategy. So we use insights and strategy first and foremost. Then, depending on what that strategy calls for, we'll execute the creative, the ideas, or we'll bring in partners to do that, and we'll serve as a consultant along the way. But mostly what ends up happening is we do, because we believe so strongly in this human-powered marketing, is we will create programs for them, people programs, that have us go out, and because and, most of the problems just exist that they're not culturally relevant. So it's going out and finding those people. We recruit those people. We hire them. We train them. Uh, and then we manage them and execute different ideas through them in their community groups. If it's a sport brand, it might be in running communities all over the world. Um, if, it's, if it's a gaming company that's offering a product, uh, it might be in different gaming platforms that we're operating in. So whatever it is, we're managing these teams of people and the ripple effect of influencers in those local communities to have a bottom-up impact on the brand versus just a top-down one. So maybe I'm mixing things, but correct me if I'm wrong. There is something that I've read which is called the brand movement marketing. Is this something related to what you're just describing? Absolutely. I think this is how brand movements start. And I think we do it, honestly, better than anyone in the world. I mean, that's kind of our point of view. Yeah. But it's because we're, we're finding the, the motivated and influential people in the, in the spaces and places where people actually are open to being influenced. And we're, we're convincing them to believe in a brand, to be behind the ethos of a brand, 
so that they then go have a, they go talk to their friend groups and it, you know, it ripple effects amongst the people so that when a company drops a new product into the marketplace, there's a swell of people who are hungry for that brand and following that brand that then can start the movement that you're referring to. Good. So can you walk me through, let's say the, the basics, the basic element of movement marketing. So everybody will understand what it is all about. Yeah, sure. So what you need, first of all, is, as I talked in the front part is you got to, the brand has to be ready for it. The brand has to have something in its DNA that's worth following. Okay. Now it doesn't have to have it all figured out, but something or a future that they're building towards. So think of it as a vision. We're not there yet, but this is where we're going and we want, we need people to help us take, take us there. So what's that vision? You got to have that vision of what this company is going to stand for, how it's going to change the world or better its consumer. So with that in mind, then having something, the second building block would be something innovative, something worth talking about. Okay. So it could be a new technology that they've developed. It could be a new product line, a new collaboration that they're coming up with. So what are the, what's the thing worth talking about? If I go up and talk to a friend and there's nothing exciting about the brand, then there's, there's no way to start the movement. So what is the, what are these, these conversation points? Okay. They're worth having. And then third, you got to have that at scale. So I can't have just one conversation. I have to have multiple conversations. That's what I'm saying. These teams of people really get activated. Okay. So we're having all of these conversations. The fourth building block is time. So we're thinking about how do you go from a, we look at it as a crawl, walk, run scenario. So when you crawl, you're testing messages, you're seeing what's resonating. You know, are people willing to pick up on this, on these conversations? Are they excited about it? Do they, do they tell other people? Yep. Once you have that, then you go into the walk phase. Yep. Walk is like, okay, now we're going to do this a little bit more at scale. And by the time you get to run, you know, there's a return on investment. So every dollar you're putting into this, you know that there's something coming out the back end that moves the needle for your business. So the fourth one is time, which is building this up and following the trend so that you can spike it at the right time with that. And then the last building block I would put in there is something of fame. Okay, so now we've got the conversations going, people are picking up on it. Now you gotta do something famous, something that everybody universally sees and champions and says, we've achieved something, you know, something that everyone can look at and go, now we've, we've sort of, we've got to the top of the mountain. Mm. That's building the movement. So what in all those five elements that you just described is different in the sense of young people will adhere to it in a different way than quote unquote older people? Yeah, well, I, you know, I think any brand has the ability to go through those things. The difference is, is that, for older generations, yeah. they're less likely to be passionate or behind the brand long-term. So, mm. so um, for example, you or I probably have certain brands that we eat at or shop at, and we're loyal almost to the logo, okay? So it actually doesn't matter what the brand does. If the brand says something you know, dumb and gets canceled by the rest of culture, it's like, eh, you know, I don't really care. I just... I'm loyal to the logo. I like the food they make. You know, it tastes good or whatever. Young adults are not loyal to the logo. They're loyal to the creativity, innovation, and disruption of a brand. So that's, that's where the brand movement can happen because a company that comes in and starts being creative, innovative, listening to its people and disruptive, that's something I'm loyal to. And as long as that company continues on that, on that track, then they can build the loyalty behind them. 
So I'd say that loyalty is very different between the two generations. And that's why. Oh, this is very interesting. Yeah. It's why brand movements don't, it, it's actually hard to work with older generations in building brand movements. It does not say a brand can't become popular, yeah. but you're not going to have the passion to follow a brand through because if the brand's not, because the brand DNA doesn't, doesn't actually matter to them. It's just like, it's the logo. They, they make good product. Can you give an example from the, the history of such a phenomena that you just mentioned about this creativity, innovation and stuff? Uh, yeah. Uh, I, I mean, I think the brands we work with do a pretty good job of that, but I'm going to give you a brand we don't work with that I think does a good job um, of this. And this is, let's, let's use Lego. Uh, Lego are the, uh, the toy building blocks that, you know, were, have been around forever. Who doesn't know? Them? Right. Yeah. Been around forever. Yeah. Lego had become a pretty static company, I'll call it, in that they made blocks and that was it. And, you know, they saw other companies, other toy companies coming into their space and taking over um, the idea of, of innovation yep. uh, away from them. And they had to reinvent themselves. And they did that through this bottom-up technique that I'm talking about. So they started having really interesting collaborations. They actually they even started saying, okay, we're going to open the platform up for up. So we had interesting collaborations. So like the idea of what Legos could be changed. And then there's a lot of product innovation with that, movie collabs, um, you know, everything that you could be passionate about. So they found all these niche audiences that they could start to talk to and say, Oh, you're really into Harry Potter. Boom. You're going to love this. Oh, but you're into you. You love travel. Okay. Here's a travel set, you know? And so like they started to talk into these niche communities and have something worth saying. Then they built it up and scale over time. And now brilliantly, they've opened the platform, which is to say that anybody can now come up with a really great Lego creation submit it onto their platform and then you know it gets voted essentially and those that become very popular they actually make and they you know ship it out oh really yeah and so now you have the passion enthusiasts creators who are like i'm gonna, i want to come up with the next lego thing you know and so now there's people all over the world using legos in a creative way that the company itself can never come up with right because now we're leveraging the creativity of everyone so you know they're limited they're a limited organization but now everyone can do it and it's blossomed. And so, you know, now they're coming Now they're like, Oh, well now our creations were a creativity company. And so now we're coming up with movies and you know, like the, it's like the chains are unlocked for them. And so, um, you know, that's a company that's just really transformed, uh, through this process. Uh, this is a good example. And, and for sure, uh, uh, one that I can now, uh, understand more now during the last 20 years or so, uh, technology changed a lot. Yeah. How did marketing change in, in the last 20 years? You know, unfortunately, I, I think a lot of marketing hasn't changed. Um, <laughs> so, but, but let's talk about the people who have. Okay. Let's talk about the ones who have been, have been adopters. Okay. But I, I, if I was to just take a pulse of the industry, I think there's a lot of people who are still trying to force old school techniques and old, uh, through new technology and it just doesn't come off authentic. But let's ignore that for a moment and talk about the positive stuff. I think those that are embracing this merging of digital and IRL are winning. And, um, you know, I, I want to be an organization that does that, but it's, it's always challenging because there's always new technologies coming out. You don't know which ones to embrace and which ones are going to take hold. But there's now an era of experimentation that is open for brands that didn't exist previ with previous technologies. And what I mean is that now a brand has the openness just to try. And there's a I have a very deep psychological reason for that, but their audiences are open to them just trying and experimenting. And even if they fail, it doesn't matter. They're still going to support you because you are trying and because you are experimenting. And I think that is technology. So all these new, pla these new platforms going into gaming, 
going in, you know, you getting into, you know, even TikTok, like just going wherever the people are and supporting them and being there and interacting with them. That the experimentation, I think, is what's different. And that's what's being, I think, is winning for brands. But they're all being considered equal. You know, the, there might be brands that are, you know, so ancient in a way that <laughs> even if they'll go and do some TikToks, people will laugh at them and say, look, or, or everybody is legit to do everything. Well, no, you're going to get made fun of and you're going to get called out. But I would still say that trying is better than not trying in this, for this, for a younger audience and you will get called out, but as long as you, it takes time, you got to be authentic in whatever it is that you do. Right. Yeah. I saw yeah. that, you know, even like League of legends, the, yeah, I was just talking to a friend this morning. I was like, what is MasterCard doing sponsoring this opening ceremony of League of legends? It's like, what? It doesn't even make sense <laughs> to me, you know? Okay. And I'm sure that a lot of people are like, this is the wrong brand partner. Yeah. Okay. Okay. So they're going to call out for that. That said, they keep at it. They do it over. They keep playing in this space. They're going to gain some credibility over time. Yeah. So I think you got to be committed to it to get through the, those rough patches. If you're not, if you come in and you're, cause it's, it's a marketing play and it's not actually part of your DNA to be creative, innovative, disruptive. And you're just like, let's just market our product. You're going to get called out. You're going to be inauthentic. You're going to get shunned away and you'll run because you'll get scared from it. But brands that are committed to a space, committed to a cause, committed to, a, to an ethics platform over time, even if they're called at the very beginning, over time, as long as they're serious about it and committed to it and committed to that audience that's there, they will win. I fully understand creativity. I understand innovation um, and commitment. Well, how do you really define authenticity? Boy, that's like a million dollar question for anyone. That's a great question. How do you define authenticity? Um, for brands, I think it's very difficult because they went into business to make money yep. and they exist only because they make money. And as soon as they cease making money, well, for most businesses anyway, <laughs> they're out of money. Uh, maybe not some startups, but so I think that is, that is a very, is very difficult for them. I think actually that the legacy brands struggle with it more because their business is so entrenched in the processes that lead to making money. And now businesses, let's just use the climate of the day, businesses are now asked to not be just money makers, they're actually asked to be moral leaders of society. So how does a company who's got all the processes and history and knows how to make a good product and make money now also be looked at and be told they have to be moral authorities in society? It's nearly impossible. But you don't have the right people, you don't have the right processes, it's not part of your DNA. I think that's a struggle. Younger businesses who are in startup mode, who are building their businesses around morality and making money are going to have a better chance to succeed. So they are more authentic. And these older brands are going to be seen as inauthentic. It's going to be a harder path, longer path for them. I don't have the answer. I just think it's, I think it's a harder path to success for them. Sure. Now, in order to really understand what your customers are interested or what they talk about, do you believe in kind of spying or, or, or understanding or inquiring through the social media what they are doing? Well, this is a double-edged sword. Yep. I think that most young adults will tell you privacy is of utmost concern to them. Yep. And their safety and security online is of high value. And I think that every business that is engaging with them on social platforms and in any digital media 
they better, if you want to attract young adults and be, have them, you better be up upfront on all of that. And that's almost like a, a no brainer for anyone yeah. going there. Yeah. However, as much as the game of privacy that they talk, the actual data wouldn't support, support that. So what's going on behind the scenes is actually they're pretty open to giving you data <laughs> yeah. about themselves. Yeah. More even than you and I are open to giving data about them. Yeah. But they'll be the loudest voices against it. Yeah. So what hap- is happening there, I believe, is that as long as you're an organization that is seemingly putting their interests in mind, you're not selling their data, you're using it wisely, or if you are selling the data, you're upfront about it, then there is an openness and willingness to improve my experience on your platform by you getting to know me better. The more you know about me, the better your tools, your technology becomes for me. I want that as a young adult, but I want to know that it's safe and secure. So it's a double-edged sword there. Yeah, yeah, for sure. And just for clarity, what's the age range you, you defined a young adult? Yeah, I look at, well, young, youth means different things to different people, right? depending on how old you are. Yeah, yeah. So I would say this, um, you know, what I, where we really look at are Gen Zs and millennials. So teens to 20 somethings. But I'll tell you that I'm also very interested in the other group called alphas who are, let's call them 10 years and younger right now. I have kids in, the, in this age range. I, you know, this is a whole different generation with a different set of principles that I'm very interested in. Uh, but for right now, for most brand purposes, it's Gen Z. And that's looking at your, uh, let's look at anywhere from 16 to 24. Uh, and you can add years onto both ends of that depending on where you want to get your research. And why are you interested in the alphas? Well, because it's such a fascinating time for them. And I think that as, what's really captured me is that because I'm a parent of alphas, I'm analyzing our lifestyle around it. And I'm thinking about this gap of generations and what's going to be so different for them. I, it's just, it's so fascinating. You know, can I just go on a side for a second? I was just sure. looking at this, this the other day. It's like, I, I have three of those. So I'll, I'll be very interested to, uh... <laughs> well, the, this whole rise of who's the authority in the household. Okay. It used to be mom and dad. Like we know the most, right? We're the dads, right? You and I. So, but now Alexa is smarter than us and they're in the household. I've already seen this happen with Gen Z's in the classroom, but now it's happening at home. So that when you know, a little, little girl wants to go listen to or wants to know more about her homework, is she going to ask dad? No, dad's a limited human being. I'd rather ask Alexa and Alexa can help me with my homework better than dad. I think this is a, now the authority in the household has shifted and it, it makes me nervous, right? As a dad, right? I want to, because, because if, if, the, if the information source is there first, what's going to follow as they become teenagers is the emotional resource as well. So now it's like, you know, dad only has one set of circumstances and experiences to pull to help me with how, you know, becoming a teenager or whatever. And now it's the emotional resources are going to be in Alexa. And because Alexa has a whole range of things to pull from. I don't know where this goes, but it makes you, I'm very intrigued by it. Well, this, uh, okay, Alexa is out. Um. <laughs> Kick him out of the house. Well, here's the thing though, we have to embrace it. Uh, you know, that's the thing, like this, it's all coming. Voice, you know, anywhere and everywhere, it, it's the future. And I was, as nervous as I am about it, we have to embrace it. I tell the same thing to brands. You can't run from it. Like, it's only gonna grow. Uh, whatever technology scares you, sure. you ought to just embrace it and go there because you'll have better, uh, long-term success. So let me touch this point, the, the emotional effect. How is emotion plays in, in, in branding and in, in uh, 
you know, all this uh, marketing for the young generation. Yeah. Well, emotions, everything. I mean, you see this generation, they're, they're actually, um, I'll even say emotional, that is that willing to put their emotions up you know, out front. I think, you know, as older adults, we just come up, came of different age where you kind of hide your emotions. It's like actually a sign of weakness to put yourself out there. But this generation, they put it all out there. And oftentimes, even as parents, we're like, whoa, that's a, that's a bit much, right? <laughs> um, okay, uh, I wouldn't ever do that. But it's very natural for them. And I don't, I don't know if this is good or bad. It, it, again, I don't want to weigh my, my Gen Xer mentality onto it because we always think that our generation had it right. But it, you know, it's just the way that it is. So I think they are very emotional. And because of that, brands that are, that are just as emotional, that is willing to admit their faults, being vulnerable, um, being open and transparent in ways that you know, legacy brands maybe would not be willing to do, they resonate. They resonate so well. Um, and this kind of comes back to human-powered marketing. You know, the more human your brand is or appears to be, and that includes emotions, I think the, the better chance you have with this generation. So the other point I'm missing is sense of purpose. You can, because you can be emotional, you can speak about cultural, and, and, but what about sense of purpose? Many of the, um, is it something they seek? Well, I think it's being redefined. <laughs> so, you know, I'll just, let me just use um, careers, for example, because it's something we're familiar with. You know, we would look at a career, a sense of purpose of saying, I want to become you know, something in my career and we aspire to climb the ladder and see how high we can go. And, you know, it gives us a, a sense of purpose in doing that. And then this generation comes along and I will tell you, they have no interest in climbing ladders and they have more interest in building a lot of other ladders. They're actually way more interested in creating ladders across as many different platforms, many different things that they can experience. That's their value system where our value system is like, you know, go up the ladder, they'll, they'll quit one job and go to a completely different job and it'll drive parents like us crazy. We're like, what are you doing? Where's your sense of purpose? Where are you going? And yet they are, you know, they are fulfilling their sense of purpose, yeah. which is as many different things as I can experience and achieve, that is part of my success DNA. It's just different. We, we all want to be successful, but how we define it is different. How do you see COVID, uh, if at all, uh, changing the ecosystem? So, you know, who knows what the total impact is going to be, but without a doubt, it is going to affect us. I, here's how I've been thinking about it. When 9-11 happened and the world realized that people want to harm you and we started thinking about security and now everywhere we go, we expect security. So whether that's in retail stores and malls or it's at a concert, there's security everywhere. And it's just, it's come become part of our ordinary life. It's no problem to get on a plane. Of course, I'm gonna go through security. I think health security is going to be just like that. That at first it's going to be like, oh, I got to wear a mask here. They got to take my temperature before I go into the concert or, or whatever it is, the scanning, the cleaning, the way that we don't interact or don't touch in when we're exchanging, uh, you know, contactless payments. All of this is going to feel weird at first. And then about 10 years from now, we're going to be like, can you imagine a time where we, where we shook hands or we actually shook hands? Yeah. <laughs> yeah. You know, it's like, what, what were we doing? And we think that way about previous nine 11. We're like, let me get this straight. A whole bunch of people could just walk into a big building and not get checked to see if there's any weapons. What? <laughs> of course that's problematic. I think the same thing is going to happen. We're going to be like, you remember when it's like, yeah, we just all passed around this, this dollar bill that everyone touched. And now we're, what were we doing? You know? I think it's going to, I think the impact is going to feel a little like that. 
Interesting. I was hoping we'll uh, we'll go back to the days that we can uh, drink beer together, but probably. <laughs> well, here's the thing: you and I still will. It'll be the younger generation that won't. Yeah. <laughs> now, I'm looking into. Uh, you've mentioned the 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 um, the parenthood with millennials and with Gen Zs. How do you see this moving forward? in terms of uh, the, the family relations and how this is going to evolve moving forward. So something pretty interesting that I've been watching is, and this absolutely relates to technology, is that there is a, um, the technology gap between generations is actually shrinking. So as fast as technology moves and everything's changing all the time, you know, it used to be that you'd have to come over and help grandma figure out her VCR, right? Yeah. And, but now, Grandma's probably got an iPhone. She's probably got one of your old iPhones. And of course, we had to teach her how to use it, but she's on an iPhone. There's a point where kids and their moms are actually, they're all playing, oh, an old reference, Angry Birds. You know, they're all playing Angry Birds together at the same time. And so I think there is something that's happening where the families are coming, can have the ability to come closer together through technology really? because we're all, we're all using Netflix and we're all now using it. Well, in the future we'll all be gaming together. And it's like, I think actually there's something that's going to bring a family closer together. And even in this time when you want to add pandemic or even add that the, the nuclear family itself has now been split apart where moms and dads and kids don't all live together. Like so much of that has occurred that actually these, this tech and these platforms could bring even a, a remote family um, or a separated family together as well. Things to talk about, things that you're watching, things that you're doing. We're engaging on the same platforms and the same game. Like, I think that's actually pretty exciting. What about companies that are addressing or trying to address both generations, the, uh, the older generation and the young generation? What, what should be their, you know, philosophy moving forward? Yeah, this is a struggle for a lot of brands, especially if you want to attract young adults. A lot of times the parents are right there alongside of them. Yeah. And, uh, of course, the young, the, you know, even targeting, you know, teens, you want to be thinking about the parents because they parents are still a big influencer in purchase decisions. So here's the advantage that we have. If we were doing this 20 or 30 years ago, you know, it's actually very difficult. But today, because of the way that we can fragment our media, it's actually pretty easy. Uh, so the different segments. Yes, exactly. Segmentation is king here. Yeah. So of course, you want to be open to all imagine the other audiences seeing the other thing, that's fine. But for the most part, we can pretty reliably decide where you see one message and where this group sees another message that are maybe tie back to the same brand root DNA, but expressed very differently. That's very possible and actually easy these days. Yeah. How do you see, you've mentioned it earlier, but how do you see gaming um, as part of this uh, new approach to, uh, to young, young generation? Because gaming is everywhere and all of them are very, very into it. So is it becoming a part of our... Yeah, I think it's going to take overtake sport. So uh, here in the United States where I'm based, um, but you'll see this in other countries, the big sports are in... The, with youth participation in sports is declining. In America, the big three, baseball, basketball, football, year over year, less and less kids are playing uh, organized sports. And a lot of that has to do with my success metrics. Remember, I want to achieve, I want to be, I want to be something and I want to try all these different things. And if I can't achieve by the eighth grade, it's like kids are being recruited for the university yeah. or, you know, they're already being signaled. You're the next pro. Yeah. And if you look at like LeBron James, it's like, okay, I don't have the DNA of LeBron James and I want to be something in my world. I'm not going to waste my time 
furthering my skills in a sport. And so kids are bailing. Yeah. Where are they going? Well, they're looking at esports and saying, actually, those kids look a lot like me, you know, and I believe I can achieve in that. And it's fun and engaging. And so I think a lot of older adults still think of gaming as like Ataris and Nintendos in the basements, you know, pressing little buttons. And, and of course, if you've followed esports, you know that this is, this is the future. It is. We could spend a whole three hours just talking about the future of gaming because there's so much there. No, it's huge. It's huge. Yeah. And so yeah. I think it's going to overtake sport. I think every, I've been telling this to our brand partners, it doesn't matter what industry you think you're in, you're competing with gaming. So you're in the music industry, you're competing with gaming now. You're in the fashion industry, you're competing with gaming because they're all, they're all coming up with their own lines and products and brands within the gaming platforms. You're in competition. You just don't even know it yet. Yep. And I, I think it's the quiet giant that is, for those that are in the know, really understand it. And for those that are, aren't in the know, they're really missing it. So if, if you look like, I don't know, five years ahead, three years ahead, how does future look for this industry? For gaming? For, for millennials, for gaming, for you know, what, what you're doing now. Well, I do think staying on gaming, I think gaming is no longer quiet. I think it is now in five years, it is everywhere. And I can't pull up Spotify without hearing a virtual you know, band be number one. And I'm going to the movies and I'm having to, I'm competing in the movie. I'm watching something on TV and I'm competing online. I think, I think gaming is going to be a part of literally everything. And so I think it's no longer quiet. So I think, I think it'll start to spread and bleed away from just like this one narrow version that we have of gaming and suddenly gaming is everywhere and everything. Um, and by the way, you know, gaming mechanics and are, are nothing new. Everyone understands that having gaming mechanics in almost, you know, in any kind of engagement is always beneficial, but now it's just going to like really come to life is where I would, I'd put my money there. Invest in gaming. Invest in gaming. Yeah. Do you still see in a few years' time traditional businesses which are not engaging the young generations? Well, you can't forget that the older generations, even older millennials, Gen Xers, boomers, they still got a lot of money. They still got a lot of life. They're going to live even longer. Yeah. And so you can become captive of the cultural moment, which is thinking we always got to target young, young, young. And then you forget that there's all this there's all the other people, the rest of us. Yeah. Yeah. And those are huge markets. I've seen some companies that have just started to just engage, just go after only, you know, different older segments of, of people. And they're, they're going to be hugely successful uh, because they're, because no one else, there's no cop. There's the competition is lower there. There's not as much interest. And if you bring innovation and thought, you know, to the older generations, I think you can be hugely successful there too. The idea is just, you know, relating and understanding just as you would young adults, but you can become very captive of the moment, the latest cool thing and miss that most people are not actually interested in that. Yeah. Yeah. So going back to my initial or one of my initial questions to you was, okay, you're, you're sitting somewhere in a company, you're hearing this podcast. It seems to me very interesting because you do believe that you can, I should address the millennials and the Gen Z's mm -hmm. and you didn't do it before. So aside of just uh, launching an email or, you know, speaking to you guys, what would you say should be the first steps of such a person or a lady that wants to uh, 
to start a journey. Here's what I would do. If I was sitting in that chair, the first thing I would do is I would realize that probably every decision that's been made about this company has probably been very top down. And the first thing I would do is I would go to all my young employees and say, if you were sitting in my seat, what would you do? They are an abundant resource. And I promise you, they have all the ideas on how to fix your company. And they're going to see it the same way that you do, but they're going to offer you all the ideas. And if you are willing to listen and see a pattern in some of those, that's the first thing I would do. Um, and we've encouraged our brands to do that. And they've got some fantastic ideas. You'll come up with more things than you would ever dream up of. This is a great idea. Uh, but you have to give them the platform. You have to give them the platform. Yep. And most, you know, the corporate boardroom, the all glass room where no one else can hear, you've got to, you've got to get out of that. Though That's a gatekeeper mentality in a business. And you've got to be gatekeeperless, which is people got to believe their bottom-up ideas can, can find a way to success. And then you have more engaged employees. And how do you reach them? Well, I think it probably looks different the size of the business. It might be as easy as just talking to people or, you know, but I would say give them a real platform for doing that. That might be a simple intranet. It might be a competition uh, internally. There's a lot of ways they could look, but it, you know, really it's, it's, the, it's getting over the gatekeeper mentality for that to exist and for people to believe in it. Yep. I think this is a, a great, uh, a great place to start and maybe also to kind of, uh, end our discussion. <laughs> I enjoyed it a lot. I've, I've learned a lot also. Well, we've covered a ton of things already in, in, in our short amount of time. This is great. Yeah. Thank you uh, for your time and thank you for uh, the many tips that we've uh, exchanged. Probably we have, as you said, uh, a lot to speak about uh, next time. So thank you very much for that. Well, thank you for having me. Pleasure. Bye. Take care. Bye. Thanks for listening to Future of Tech. If you like what you heard and want more, make sure to subscribe on Apple Podcasts or your favorite podcast app. And if you have any comments or questions, feel free to write to our host, Avishai Sharlin, directly on LinkedIn. LinkedIn.